But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Well, we are one week out from our last week of our Of the Vine series. Um, And as Matt and Sam mentioned, today we will be talking about self-control because I drew the short straw. When... When I'd heard that I would be talking about self-control, my first thought was, I should, I should get some of that. Um, so I decided to take a look at my eating habits, which have been just abysmal since having a baby. It's kind of the low-hanging fruit for me, the low-hanging fruit that I just kept compulsively eating, apparently. So uh, I looked at that, and I've lost about 10 pounds since last time I was on stage, which is exciting. But thank you. Hey, thanks. Um, but I've also watched like two seasons of shows I don't even like on Netflix, and so I began to wonder if I had just found a new medium through which to express my gluttony. And so let me, let me begin this morning by saying that these are the musings of someone who has yet to master self-control and probably won't. Um, and my time going through regroup as a participant and then leading has not made me impenetra- impenetrable to temptation, but rather given me a clearer, less rose-colored lens through which to view my temptation, which I think in its purest form, is nothing more than an invitation to behave like someone I'm not. So I think, uh, we, I think self-control is hard for us for a couple of reasons. First, because we misunderstand what it actually is. And second, because we misunderstand who we actually are and therefore what we're capable of. Because humans behave out of an understanding of our identity. And I can still think of no better way to describe this than in terms of Superman and Clark Kent. Underneath the glasses, the awkward mannerisms, Clark is Superman. And so when there's, a, when there's a train speeding toward a ravine, he throws himself in front of it. And why? Because he's Superman. Because he knows what he's capable of. He knows he has the power within him to stop the train. But what if he didn't? What if Superman got hit really hard in the head and woke up with amnesia? And when he woke up in Clark's clothes, all he knew about himself was what other people reflected back to him. Lois, who thinks he's a bumbling do-gooder. His friends, who think he's timid and cowardly. Would, would he still throw himself in front of the train? Of course not. And even though we know that he actually has the power inside of himself to stop it, he would never try because he's behaving out of an understanding of his identity. And so to him, to throw himself in front of a speeding train would be absurd. It not only would help none of those people, but it would get him killed too. We all do this. You do this, I do this. We make decisions out of an understanding of our identity. So it stands to reason that if we believe that we are people incapable of resisting temptation, then we have already failed. And so I think a part of our practice of godly self-control must be to remember who we are and what we're capable of. More on that later. So the other thing that makes self-control difficult is that we don't know what it actually is. The the Greek word used for self-control here, egratea, means in the dominion of self, self self-mastery. And I think there's kind of like two camps on this. There's the pull yourself together camp, the the follow the rules camp, the, the do it, the get it done camp. This is the camp that tries very hard to be holy and not without success. But when they fail, which they inevitably will, it wrecks them. They hide from God in their own sin and guilt because they can't imagine not following the rules. They can't imagine God's not mad at them. This camp also believes that everyone outside of their camp is the worst. 
And then the other camp is the follow your heart camp, the camp that, that, that recognizes that we are all sinners in need of God's grace and we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, so just let him lead. Just whatever feels right to your heart, that's what you should do. Well, the problem with this camp is that if I followed my heart, it would lead me straight to Netflix and Junior Mints and my baby's diaper would never get changed. We all know what camp we're in, right? If you don't know, ask your spouse. They'll tell you. I don't think either of these ideas are actually what self-control is. Our, our miscalculation, I think, is to imagine that a practice of self-control is nothing more than a show of self-restraint. And self-restraint is a part of self-control, but self-control is more. They're not the same. Self-control is all-encompassing. It's the controlled self. It's proactive, not reactive. It's more about what you pick up, not just what you put down. The controlled self is one that, that engages good things to practice for the test long before it has to resist bad things to pass the test. The controlled self pursues connection to the Father through prayer and through his word. The controlled self avoids situations of obvious temptation. The controlled self pursues accountability before there is habitual sin. The controlled self stays connected to the vine even when there is no trial. So when that trial comes, which of course it will, the fruit has ripened. It's grown heavy, fragrant, and is far easier to pluck from the vine. You can think of it this way. If, if self-control is an instrument, then self-restraint is only a chord. And if you know how to play the instrument, you can always play the chord, but if you don't know how to play the instrument, the chord can only be played by imitation or by accident, never by skill. And so learning an, effort, uh, learning an instrument takes effort. What the, what the follow your heart camp leaves out is that there is a measure of our effort that is required to cultivate the fruit of the spirit. I'm certain that it was not lost on the author of Galatians that fruit is something that grows. It must be watered, fed, protected from pe pests, cultivated. If, if there were no effort involved in cultivating the fruit of the spirit, then why would self-control be among its characteristics? My nephew, Aiden, my brother's youngest son, as he was learning to talk, uh, I think this was around age four, he was talking up a storm but still learning the finer points of grammar and syntax. And uh, when offered something that he did not want, he would use this phrase, I can't want that. And it didn't matter how many times his parents corrected him and said, no, Aiden, you mean you don't want that? And he'd be like, yeah, I can't want that. And I, and I loved it because I think it was actually a, a more accurate description of, of what's going on. I can't want that. But the fall of your heart camp gets right is that the beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit upon our conversion is that we, for the first time, can want that. We receive with the gift of the Spirit the stirrings of virtue in our hearts for the first time, which then can want to be good, can want to be faithful, can want to be kind. But this is not yet the fully mature fruit of the Spirit. It's the blossom and while the flower indicates that the branch is living, we shouldn't mistake one for the other. Cultivating the fruit takes effort. So today we're going to be looking at a passage in Matthew where Jesus is tempted by the devil as a kind of case study into what perfect self-control looks like in the person of Jesus Christ. But, but what I want us to keep in mind throughout this pericope is that Jesus, while he is certainly displaying self-restraint, has been employing through his self-control uh, a cultivation of the fruit of the Spirit for 30 years prior to these moments. So let's read Matthew 4, starting in verse 1. 
Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him sit on the, stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil lift, left him and angels came and attended him. This is God's word. So when Jesus answers the devil, devil's temptations, all of his responses are quoted from passages that are between Deuteronomy chapter six through eight. And I wanna say up front, because of this, I'm not gonna talk today about everything that's important about this passage, maybe not even the most important things about this passage that would require a couple sermons on, a couple more sermons on Matthew, a few on Deuteronomy. So, so we just have to narrow our focus this morning to observe what he can tell us about self-control in this passage. So all of his responses quoted from Deuteronomy six through eight, this is important because the author of the gospel is trying to, to draw a parallel here between Jesus's temptation in the desert after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness and preparation and Israel's testing, which happened during her 40 year preparation in the desert before she entered the promised land. The suggestion here is that Jesus is passing a test that Israel failed. So, Temptation one, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now you have to keep in mind, Jesus has just spent 40 days, 40 days without a morsel of food. He is hungry. And then the devil shows up and offers him the solution. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Surely you can do that. Surely you're able to do that. And, and if you think about it, wouldn't your dad want you to do that? Because what good are you to him if you starve out here in the desert? Surely there's nothing evil about eating. No, that's technically true. There is nothing evil about eating, but anyone who has been suffering this, the effects of a sinful world, and that's all of us, knows that what we eat and how we obtain it leaves much room for sin. This is, of course, not the first time that Satan has invited someone to eat rather than obey. Would Adam and Eve have taken that first bite if they knew how much evil could come of the wrong food? When you say the most hurtful thing in the most hurtful way and you're satisfied. When you eat yourself sick so you can be satisfied. When you spend money on stuff you can't afford so you'll be satisfied. When you take that drink because you think it will satisfy, are there not hungers? that once we've satisfied, we wish to God we would have starved. Jesus' response, quoted from Deuteronomy 8, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This passage continues. For all these 40 years, your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not blister or swell. This is really interesting because Jesus, in his denial of, his, of satisfying his own hunger, is pointing out something that's really, really important. This hunger 
has a purpose. He's saying, look, this hunger, God through this hunger is doing something in me. The same way that he did something in Israel, God is not depriving us of every blessing. Their shoes didn't wear out for 40 years. He's not depriving them of every blessing. He's depriving them of food for a purpose, for a period of time, so that the manna, the bread from heaven that miraculously appears, will build their faith because he has plans for them. God has plans for Israel. This hunger had a purpose. It was, it was very specific, a deprivation to build their faith because their faith, living on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is the tool by which they can join God in his ongoing rescue of everything. It had a purpose. Cicero says, he can never be brave who believes pain is the greatest evil. God never withholds all blessings at once. And there is always a purpose for our hunger. And in fact, when we feel like God is withholding all blessings at once, I would suggest that perhaps we don't know or accept what, what it means to actually be blessed. Yes, we, ab- we absolutely should pursue God's blessing. But we should also keep in mind that Jesus calls blessed the poor, the meek, the mourners, those who are persecuted. As defined by these epithets, I sometimes believe that God is blessing me within an inch of my life. There are some kinds of hunger that are meant for great good. A blessing to us and to others as well. I think the divine use of testing can be summed up in the words of Joseph who, looking into the eyes of brothers who sold him into slavery, knew that that sale had in fact purchased their own lives. And he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good and for the saving of many lives. Peter says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. We already live in a world that is tainted by sin. We are going to experience the natural consequences of our sin and the sin of others. We can't do anything about that. But how we walk through those temptations and trials, not if, but how, will determine whether good or evil comes of it. The controlled self seeks God's purpose before it seeks relief. In the second temptation, the devil whisks Jesus away to the top of the temple and says, throw yourself down for the scriptures say that God will command his angels concerning you and you will not dash your foot against a stone. And when I first read this one, I found it difficult to understand why this would even be tempting. Jesus knows who he is. God has just announced it as a baptism. What would be tempting about throwing himself off a building just to prove to the devil that he is who he said he was? So I think it's actually in Jesus' response that we get more of an understanding of, of what was so tempting about this suggestion. So Jesus answers him, the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. And the full verse he's quoting there is from Deuteronomy 6.16. It continues, you must not test the Lord your God as you did when you complained at Massa, which is an Exodus reference. And this is where my sermon prep started to feel like the movie Inception. To understand Jesus's quote in Matthew 4, we have to look at Galatians 5 through the lens of John 15, examining Deuteronomy, which was referencing the Exodus. The Bible's hard. <laughs> so what happened at Massa? At Massa, the Israelites have begun their flight from Egypt. They've been, they've been set free. They're on their way through the desert into the promised land, and they are thirsty. 
Now, what's important to remember is that they have literally just witnessed incredible miracles at the hands of God through Moses. The the Red Sea has been parted. They've walked through on dry land. Moses throws a twig into a body of salt water, and it becomes fresh to drink. Manna, bread from heaven that appears miraculously as if from nowhere every morning has been given to them. There have been no shortage of miracles of provision at the hands of God, and yet here the Israelites begin to grumble and say, Is God really with us or not? The failure of Israel, I think, in this moment is to remember. To remember the miracles that literally just happened. Her failure is taking a point in time in which she is in great distress and using that as a litmus test to determine whether or not God is present with her. They're testing God by making accusations of his absence so that he might just give them what they want to prove that he can. This temptation, I think, is so sinister in its subtlety. The devil quotes scripture at Jesus. He gets wise. Jesus keeps answering him with scripture, so he quotes scripture back. He says, good, you trust God. You trust God. Now trust him to do what he says he'll do for you. This calls into question God's ability. The devil tempts us to believe God, to believe him for what he says he'll do for us. But, but the subtle temptation that he twists in there is that we should get to define what God said he'll do for us. Sure, I'll trust God for the outcomes, but I will decide what those outcomes are. Thank you very much. And if God doesn't show up, then I guess he can't. I found a delicious recipe for tuna melts one time. Hard turn. And, uh, Uh, it was just kind of this delightful thing. It was like a piece of whole grain bread with a little bit of Russian dressing with tomatoes and tuna salad and avocado slices on top and sprinkled with mozzarella and you put it in the oven just till it's all melty and short. It was the perfect sandwich. And I went to my husband and said, hey, I'm gonna make these tuna melts tonight for dinner and I wish you could have seen, I wish I had a video of how viscerally he recoiled from me just as though I just asked him to eat dog vomit. It was startling. It was really something. And, but because he's a wonderful husband, what he managed to say with his mouth was, uh, I, I don't really like tuna melts, so I'm going to go ahead and have, have this leftover pizza. And I was like, sure, okay. I thought it was a tuna thing. Some people hate tuna because it smells like a wet car on a hot day. Um, or they love tuna. They have a pet tuna. Save the tuna. But I didn't want to force him to eat something that disgusts him. So he heated up his pizza... And I made my delectable whole grain tomato avocado delicious sandwich. And I bring it to the table. I had no sooner sat down and begun to take a bite of the sandwich when he kind of looks at me with these wide eyes of longing and says, what are you eating? (laughs) I'm eating a tuna melt. And he said, that's not a tuna melt. And then I got curious and I said, okay, well, what do you think a tuna melt is? And then he proceeded to describe to me a dish which unfortunately had been served with great frequency in his childhood (laughs) that was called a tuna melt, but it consisted of a hot dog bun uh, with undressed tuna stuffed inside, topped with Velveeta cheese uh, and olives, and then cooked in the oven until it was hard. We were not talking about the same thing. It's a Midwest thing, I think. Midwestern, I don't understand Midwestern food. It's like anything with two ingredients is a salad, even if it's jello and pretzels. Salad. It's true. So, my point is this if 
If we are to trust God, we must understand what it is that we are trusting him for. We've got to define it. And then we have to make sure that our definition syncs up with his because if it doesn't, we are setting him up for failure, at least in our own perception. And we are setting ourselves up for disappointment, which will damage our faith, which again is the tool by which we join God in his ongoing rescue of everything. We have to remember what God has already done so that we're not tempted to ask him to do tricks to prove to us that he's able point of context, the the temptations of Jesus in all of the synoptic accounts happen immediately after his baptism. So so Jesus goes to be baptized in the Jordan River, the, the heavens are rent open, and the voice of God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, as the, 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 the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And then immediately, just immediately, he's whisked away into the desert to be tempted the author of this gospel wants us to understand something here. And that's, that's all the accounts. What's being tested in Jesus is not his ability. It's not his power. It's not his calling. It's his identity. Will you behave like the son of God? Didn't he say he'd care for you? Didn't he say he'd take care of you? Are you sure he's good? But Jesus, as the son of God, has spent the last 30 years cultivating relationship with his father. He knows his character. So when the devil suggests that perhaps God doesn't have a good plan, Jesus remembers that he does. When the devil suggests that God isn't good, Jesus remembers that he is. He remembers that he has a father who is loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, and good. He remembers. The, self, the controlled self remembers Jesus practices self-control by remembering, by remembering who he is, who God is, what God said he would do, and he does it most importantly when the circumstances would suggest otherwise. The controlled self remembers who God is when the world tells us that he's something else. We are human beings, which means we are creatures with so little longevity of memory. But listen, if you're gonna believe anything about Jesus, the Bible, God, his mission for us, if you're gonna believe any of it, you have to believe all of it. If we're gonna be sons and daughters of the living God, which is what Jesus makes us, then we have to embrace our entire family history. If we're gonna be adopted by God, we have to admit into our history the parting of the Red Sea, the raising of Lazarus, the feeding of the 5,000, because it's true and it's our history. It defines who we are and what we are capable of. And I know it feels unbelievable, but the truth about you is still the truth apart from how you feel about it. We are carbon copies, guys. We're, we're, we're image bearers of the living God. To know who he is is to know who we are. Self-control is remembering the truth even under the tyranny of emotion. The controlled self remembers. In the third temptation, Satan just kind of lays all his cards on the table and says, if you worship me and bow down to me, I'll give you the world. And what makes this temptation, I think, one of the most ugly of all is that he's offering Jesus something that Jesus already has a right to. It's already his. He's the heir. But Satan offers it to him in a way that would bypass 
the agony and the pain of death. This temptation calls into question God's way. If you ever find Jesus a little hard to relate to because of the whole, you know, being God thing, I think this temptation is really helpful because this temptation was so great that it caused Jesus to call one of his own best friends Satan. This happened in Matthew 16, shortly after Jesus has just explained to the disciples uh, what's gonna happen to him, that he has to go die. And Peter rebukes him and says, surely not, Lord, surely this is never gonna happen to you. And Jesus bursts out, get behind me, Satan, which feels a little harsh, you know? I've never once called my husband Satan, even when he offers me pizza in my, you know, my journey of healthy eating. And I don't think, <laughs> I don't think that, that Jesus actually meant that Peter was Satan. But I think it's important to, to, to understand from this that so tempting was the idea of saving the world without suffering the cross that it causes Jesus to call his friend the devil. The suggestion that any other road other than that one prescribed by the Father no, no matter how well-intentioned, no matter how innocuous, even from the mouth of a dear and honest friend who just wants better for you, it's still evil. It's still a torment to the one who knew he must die. So to question God's will for us in times of deprivation, to question his ability in times of need, to question his way when we fear the trials that we know will come, I think it is perhaps to these fears that the author of Hebrews writes when he says, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses for he faced all the same temptations we do, yet he did not sin. The temptations of the son of God are the same as the temptations of the flesh of man and they're always after the same thing. Testing is always an invitation to either strengthen or break your relationship with God. Because it's never really about the cheating. It's never really about the lie. It's never really about the money, the sex, the power, the, the prestige, the security that you think you're gonna get by breaking faith. It's about the breaking faith. Satan doesn't care what you do. He doesn't care if it's a, a, a little gossip or a catastrophic affair. All he cares about is breaking you off from the power of God because once you are broken off from the source, you can no longer bring forth the fruit that Satan finds so bitter and the world so sweet. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness that when fed to hungry hearts can woo them nearer to the heart of God. It is not about your sin. It's about his love, which you can only be a conduit of when you are connected to the vine. That's why we can never take the devil at face value. There is always something more at stake in a temptation than he will tell us. I'm gonna use an example here that some of you are gonna hate me for, but I'm used to it. I'm the regroup director uh, and my hope is to love you more than I want you to like me. I know from our marriage prep survey data that half of you in here in serious relationships are living with, you, living with someone who's not your spouse. For a small percentage of you, this is your mom, and that's okay. <laughs> but if it's not your mom, I want you to consider. 
just for a moment that you may perhaps be doing damage to the one relationship that you hope most to preserve. And I'm not talking about morality here, so, so please don't tune me out because you think I'm about to guilt you with my antiquated 1950s theology. I'm, I'm not talking about morality. My point is not so much that, that you should move out because God wants you to, though spoiler alert, he does, um, or, or that if you don't move out, he'll stop loving you. No, he won't. He'll continue to love you. I'm not talking about morality. I'm talking about shortcuts. I'm talking about the thing that's at stake in this temptation that the devil will not tell you at face value. I'm talking about cheating. Because if you shortcut faithfulness in this instance, I promise you, you will shortcut it in others. If you cheat faithfulness here, it will become easier and easier to cheat it elsewhere. Celibacy, is, it, it's an opportunity to practice not cheating faithfulness with the one person that you hope to never cheat in any other way. The controlled self practices. And I'm not judging you. How can I? I? I wrecked an entire season of my life doing exactly this. I'm not judging you. I am asking you, as someone who has walked a spell on this road myself, to look around and notice how lonely it's getting. The double life that we have to lead to be church people living together in secret is terribly, terribly isolating from, from God, from other people, from ourselves. I know. Because that's what sin does to children of God. It cuts them off from the vine. I remember. And I know, you're, I know you're fear, but if it's possible that he will move on simply because you move out, don't you want to know that before you take your vows? And I know your objections. It, you know, we're going to get married really soon and we can't afford to live on your own. Well, don't. I know at least three Christian men and women in my own circle of friends who are looking for roommates right now. And you know what? If all else fails, move back in with your mom. I have a daughter and aside from being a tiny dictator, she is the most beautiful creature I have ever beheld. And one day she will be a woman, and one day I will buy a gun. <laughs> but if she ever comes to me and says, Mom, Dad, can I just sleep downstairs for a few months? Because me and Doug are trying really hard to not have sex. There will be a cartoon dust cloud where my husband once stood because he will be halfway done with the refinish of our basement. She might even get an allowance. <laughs> we fool ourselves and one another when we, when we shortcut faithfulness and pretend that this practice won't become a habit. A consistent practice of sin always becomes a habit, but so does a consistent practice of virtue. It's not supernatural, it's repetition. If you practice it, Self-control will leave a mark on you like the stubborn imprint of your wedding ring. And you could have the biggest fight in the world and you could rip it off your finger and throw it in the ocean, but it will still leave an impression that gives you away as the bride of Christ. The controlled self practices what it hopes to produce in the moment of testing. So Jesus' final act before the, 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 the angels come and minister to him is to cast Satan out, away from me, Satan. 
And I think this is significant. The text does not say that Satan, feeling rather sheepish, took his ball and went home. I think they put this in here for a reason. Until you flee or push him away, Satan has a tendency to stick around. If for no other reason than to just show you some stuff, he wants you to know what you're missing or what you think you're missing. He wants you to know about the, the, the tastes, the smells, the sights, the sensations that are so enchanting they could entice you to worship. That is why Jesus sends the devil away. It's not, it's not weakness. It's wisdom. Israel was supposed to cast out the Canaanites because the idolatry they practiced would have seduced them. Joseph ran so fast from Potiphar's wife that he left his cloak in her hands. Adam was supposed to have dominion over all of the creatures to rule and subdue them. Would it not have been within his right to cast out the serpent who beckoned his wife to gaze at the apple? Don't judge your success over temptation by how well you stare it in the face and say no. Judge your success by how well you refuse to stare at it in the first place. Self-control invites us to leave situations in which we are likely to lose control. It is not weakness, it's wisdom. Isaac used to say that the most spiritual response is often the most practical one, and I think that's true. If you're an alcoholic, don't sit in a bar. If you find yourself incapable of getting up early to read your Bible, I would invite you to consider what time you're going to bed. It could be that the best decision, the first good decision you make tomorrow is actually the last good decision you make today. And to be clear, again, I am not talking about salvation by works. I do believe that, that, that practicing God's law invites blessings into our lives, but the rules in and of themselves, even God's rules, don't save us. God does. Some of us can white-knuckle our avoidance of sin, and a few of us are so good at it that we don't realize we're fighting a losing battle alone. But I think most of us, in the moment of trial, work so hard to produce this fruit of self-control, which we believe should be inside of us based on what God says about who we are, but we find it very hard to grasp in the moment that we need it most. And then we become discouraged because we feel like we don't understand why God is disappointing us in this way when we are literally crying out for his help to resist. I would submit to you that what we're actually doing in these moments is trying to squeeze a fruit out of a wasting branch. And we can work to the peak of our capacity with the utmost resolve, with all the greatest sincerity, yet all we're gonna get is a prune. And then a raisin. And then nothing at all. Without our connection to the vine, all we're doing is squeezing fruit from a dead branch, and that is very hard work indeed. And also, this is surprisingly where we find the very, very good news. Yes, there is work for us to do, but that work doesn't have to save us. It just keeps us connected to the one who can. Your effort absolutely matters. It invites blessings or curses into your life, into the lives of those God has given you to love. All human effort matters, but all human effort is rendered under the umbrella of God's grace. He may choose to give you the grace of obedience today. And if not, he may choose to give you the grace of forgiveness instead. 
It may not be as hard as we think to follow God when we remember what part of the work is his and what part is actually ours. The people who were telling me to read my Bible and pray more, they weren't lying to me. They just weren't telling me the whole truth. Prayer isn't magic. It's not a Patronus charm we can conjure to chase away all our enemies and all our temptations. It's, it's relationship. It's beginning a monologue with the creator of the universe. And then if we manage to read our Bible, it can become a dialogue. I think it's the, the modesty of these simple disciplines in a sensational world that hurts them because we can't believe that something so small can have power, but it does. And not because it saves you and not because it gives you leverage with God, but because it's the only way we have to get close to him. And there is much power in one who is close to God. So the devil will try to tell you that these aren't enough. And if that doesn't work, he'll tell you that you're not enough. But remember who you are. Remember what you're capable of. You have the spirit of the living Jesus inside of you and the controlled self remembers that Jesus passed the test. And out of faith and hope in him, practices the mundane daily disciplines, which, like a grubby piece of coal pressed over time, becomes unyielding diamond when finally put to the test. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Again, for this morning, thank you for the opportunity to be here in a place of worship together. Thank you for all of the, the ways that you have blessed our lives. And Lord, I pray that we have eyes to see that. Thank you that you never leave us alone in our trials and our testings. Thank you that you always provide us with an avenue to seek you, to connect with you, to receive what we need in these moments. Lord, I pray for each and every person in this room. I know that we are all going through some kind of trial right now. I feel like even in the, the easiest, most joyful periods of my life, there are still consequences, the natural consequences of my sin and the sin of others that, that are being played out. And Lord, I pray that for those who are suffering through these moments right now, I pray that they would find you to be tangibly near to them, that you would be a comfort to them, that you would remind them that you have endured all of these trials and temptations and that your heart breaks for their pain. Lord, I pray that you would give them everything they need to get through, to make it through, to put one foot in front of the other. I pray that you would fill them with the fruit of your spirit so that even in these moments of, of trial, of pain, that they can remember what they're capable of, that they can remember who they are, that they belong to you, that they are dearly loved, and that they would have the strength to make it through because of your love. And we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.